You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. It's really fascinating to be able to look back and forth, especially at some of the key words uh, as I'm trying to memorize some of these key words. And that's not the point in sharing this with you, but the point in sharing this with you is this particular Bible does not have any subheadings in it. So above chapter 9, um, I don't have something like uh, Jesus heals a man born blind from birth. I don't have that over verse 1. Uh, all I have is it, it just simply goes from John 8.59 to John 9.1. And it reminds me of a Bible that I had many years ago. I used to call it my $2 Bible because I bought it at the half-price bookstore for $2. And I used it for quite some time. It was an old New American Standard Bible that didn't have any subheadings in it. It just, what I liked about it was it had versification down the left-hand side. And it was really nice because it was easy to find the verses. Um, And I'm pointing all this to your attention because... Sometimes the subheadings can get in the way. They're, they're really helpful when you're trying to find something. You know, if I was, there's a lot of things if I was trying to find, it might take me a little longer to find because I rely on the subheadings. You know, you flip through the pages, you know, okay, now this is in chapter 8 somewhere. Ah, there it is because you see the subheading. And that's not present here in this. But sometimes I think it gets in the way, and I think this might be one place where it gets in the way. So I want to ask you to try to ignore the subheading for a moment And read chapter 8, verse 59 with me, and then we'll move from there to uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Again, trying to ignore the subheading. So uh, chapter 8, verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, maybe you just saw what I'm trying to show. Uh, And maybe because of the subheadings there and because we're going to a new chapter, uh, maybe we've never seen that before. But I think when we do that, it, it seems to suggest, and we can't be sure, but it seems to suggest that this incident is perhaps happening as early as when Jesus was leaving the temple. Now, again, we can't be dogmatic, and I can only give you my opinion on this, and I've shared with you over and over again, I'll never ask you to believe anything I can't show you from Scripture. And when I'm giving you an opinion, I'll give you an opinion. But I'm really inclined to believe that this event may have happened actually as Jesus was departing from the temple. Now, one thing I can say for sure is this. Chapters 9 and chapters 8 are very intimately connected to one another. And we're going to see this more and more uh, as we go through. And as we do, I also hope to show, Lord willing, connections between 8, 9, 10, and even 11. We're going to see that these things are very intimately connected to one another. Another observation about verse 1, as Jesus passed by, when we read those words, we might be inclined to think that this is kind of happening at random. This is kind of happening, you know, it just so happened to be, if you will. It just so happened to happen. Uh, We must um, excuse those kinds of thoughts from our minds right away uh, because this is not happening by random chance. 
Jesus will tell us this much uh, in this particular passage this morning. It's not happening by random chance any more than Jesus' rendezvous with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 happened by random chance. Uh, When we were studying that passage many weeks ago, actually many months ago, uh, I pointed out to the fact that it was a divine appointment. It was a divine appointment that Jesus would be there at this particular time, that she would be here at this particular time, that they would meet and have this particular conversation. Again, Jesus is going to point that out in our text uh, and make that very clear. So here we see, as he passed by, it could be as early as when he was fleeing out of the temple or hiding himself or however you want to put it. It wasn't like he was running scared that someone could do something to him that he wouldn't permit. He just disappeared. He departed, I think is the best way to put it, which is how I ended uh, last Sunday's uh, message, is that the glory departed from the temple. And I think that's what we're to understand from verse 59. But as that the glory was departing from the temple, it could have been actually in uh, very, very soon where he comes across a man who is blind from birth. Now, in verse 2, which is where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning, uh, his disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind. Now, in asking this question, the disciples are touching on something that has plagued every generation since probably the fall. And it's the problem we often call the problem of human suffering. The problem of human suffering. Now, someone say, what, what's the problem of human suffering? Well, the, the problem here is how do we square human suffering in light of the existence of a holy, uh, just, and powerful, and good, and loving God. How do we square these things? And this is, you know, if you do any level of outreach or you do any level of ministry, you're going to encounter this problem. Uh, You're going to encounter people who have experienced tragedy, and uh, they're angry because they've experienced tragedy. You're going to encounter people who, are, who have witnessed tragedy and been touched by tragedy very deeply, and they just can't believe that there's a good and loving God uh, if these things are happening. You'll encounter people that will rectify it this way. They'll say, well, God is good and loving. He's just not all controlling. He's not able to control everything. Uh, you'll find other people will say, well, if God is in control, He must not be uh, good and loving because uh, he allows these things to happen. And you'll hear mixtures of these things. You may even hear these things, uh, uh, a variety of these things come out of people's mouths in the same time, in the same sitting. Uh, because tragedy can affect us and take us apart to such a degree, the rationality kind of goes out the window, doesn't it? Sometimes when things happen and they're just, they, you know, it just... Sometimes we can really just become overwhelmed with things. Now, in the ancients, to the ancients, there were three views of suffering, if you will, that were prominent. And uh, the first view is uh, the view what we call today reincarnation. And I I bring that to your attention because reincarnation is still alive and well. And it's not just in Eastern lands and with Eastern religion. Uh, I talked to a neighbor a couple of years ago who really surprised me uh, that he believes in reincarnation. We were talking about something completely uh, 
I thought was completely disconnected to it, but all at once it came out and and uh, he he was embracing reincarnation. The idea that souls are continually departing and returning, departing and returning, departing from this life and then returning. And how a person returns is predicated on their previous life. And, of course, this, you know, if this were true, this might help us uh, settle the issue. Why is one little girl born in a palace or a mansion where she is loved and provided everything that she could ever desire, while in the same neighborhood another little girl is born into poverty to uh, negligent parents? Well, I mean, well, uh, perhaps in a previous life, the girl that's in a lower station was a little bit of a rascal. So now she's been brought into um, this life. Now, again, I'm probably not doing a lot of justice to reincarnation. If I, I've, I'm learning by the, by the um, metrics that Donald brings to our session meetings that there's people all over the world listening to some of these messages. So uh, for those who, um, there's probably some who have, who, uh, uh, who believe in reincarnation would probably like to sit down with me and say, that's not exactly it. Ah, fair enough. Uh, but that is the gist of what my neighbor uh, was explaining, and that is the gist of how the uh, ancients saw it. So again, a person who returns in a life station that is worse than another person uh, is culpable because of a previous life they lived. That is the basic idea of this idea of reincarnation. We must, uh, we must um, reject that. The Scriptures uh, do not teach anything close to that. So that has to be rejected. But there's a second and a third uh, idea, if you will, or view of suffering, and these aren't in any particular order, but the second we would say would be the sins of the parents. And this is what the disciples have embraced. We see that from their question. They ask, Rabbi, who sinned? And it's one or the other. Was it the parents or was it the man that he was born with congenital blindness? Who did it? Uh, who sinned? Well, was it the parents? And there was this idea that uh, the sins of the parents uh, could be the cause of this kind of suffering. And someone would say, well, where, where would they get that kind of notion from? Well, uh, if you will, turn with me. Keep your place in John, but turn with me to Exodus 20. And um, you all know what Exodus 20 is all about, right? Especially our young parents. Our young parents all know what Exodus 20 is about, right? Uh, okay, that, that's good. We're seeing affirmative smiles. Why would they know what that's about? Because the kids are learning the Ten Commandments, and we get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. We also get them in Deuteronomy 5, don't we? But you're largely uh, looking at Exodus 20, in Exodus 20, verse 1, uh, we read these words, and God spoke all these words saying, uh, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Command, commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Um, here's the idea. You shall not have any uh, images, if you will, or any idols. That's one of the reasons why there are no pictures of Jesus hanging in here. That's one of the reasons why you'll never find me using a picture of Jesus in a Bible study. 
uh, or using pictures of Jesus uh, in the teaching is because of verse number two here. We're told uh, not to uh, make any carved images in the likeness of anything that is in heaven or above. There's in the earth beneath, there's in the water under the earth. Uh, that's kind of an aside, uh, but the fact is we do not know what Jesus looked like. We don't know. Uh, and even if we did, uh, the commandment would still remain. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's the reason why we're not to do these things. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we might, uh, a jealous God, we might, we, we might read that and say, wait a second, a jealous God. How can God be good and be jealous? And the answer is there is, just as there is such a thing as holy anger, there is such a thing as holy jealousy. And the way I like to explain it is this way. Fellas, you guys um, think about this, okay? Another man comes up to your uh, bride and caresses her in a way that's inappropriate. What are you experiencing the moment you see that? Uh, do you like that? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't like that. Why? Well, we there's a remnant of sin that still dwells in our hearts. And when that happens, what do we normally want to do? We normally want to bring bodily harm to the person that's doing that, right? Yeah, I'm getting some, uh-huh, that's right. Now, here's the thing. Not all of that is wrong. Because there's an intrusion taking place that has no business taking place. Not all that is wrong. There's a violation taking place that shouldn't be taking place. Now, of course, with us having a remnant of sin in our heart, we're going to stain that to where it's going to be an admixture of right and wrong going on at the same time. But God has no remnant of sin. What does he experience he experiences jealousy. If we make a picture of Jesus and we bow to this picture of Jesus, or we use it as an aid to worship, then we're, in, we're enabling a, an intrusion in. Or if we uh, give our hearts to idols of all other kinds, we're, we're bringing an intrusion in. Uh, and God is here saying, I am a jealous God. Uh, this... Uh, he wants us for himself. He's a covenant, faithful, keeping God. He gives himself to us. He requires of us to give ourselves to him. You shall not bow down to them, to serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Ah, this is the point. This is the point. Notice what he says after that. I'll read it slowly. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, this is where the ancients got the idea that the sin of the parents could cause the suffering of the children. Now, let's think this through. What is God saying here? God is saying that he's visiting the iniquity of the parents on the children to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? 
Well, what that typically means is we have a spiritual principle that's taking place. Godly parents, parents who are raising their children, I com- fathers, I commend you, I commend you. Godly parents who are raising their children in the church, you're bringing your children to the church, you're, they're coming here, even though many of them are in the back right now, they're not hearing this message, they have still struggled. They, they look at their bulletins, they can't wait until they can read their bulletins, they're hearing these words, they're singing these words. Half the words we sing are from the Scriptures. So they're being indoctrinated in Scripture. And they see the commitment that you're making to be here. And they're forming relationships here. And when they go home, you pray with them at night before they go to bed. You read the Bible with them through the week. Are they blessed on the account of this? You better believe they're blessed on the account of this. So here we see a principle where the action of the parents benefit the children. Right? It's pretty simple. We all know that. See, Rick, you could have just said that from the beginning. We all got it. But I wanted to take you through it. This is what's happening. And these kids are being blessed. Now, let's flip this over. If the, if the godly actions of the parents bless the children, what becomes of ungodly actions of parents? Well, ungodly actions of parents will inevitably bring suffering to the children. So there is truth to this, where if if the family business is selling drugs, this can have a horrible effect on the children, right? Or we might even say that if a, a woman who is carrying a child has a drug overdose, that can cause all kind of trouble to the birth of the child, right? And in this case, it would be uh, the sin of a child or sin of a parent that brought suffering on a child. Or if uh, uh, a pregnant mom is abused by her husband while she's carrying, that can cause problems. I, I bring that up because we have known that Tammy and I have ministered to that very situation uh, where, again, a sin of a parent caused the suffering of a child. Now, the problem isn't in this principle. The problem is when we put the word always to it. That the sin, that the sin of the parent always causes suffering for the child. When we make this exclusive and always. Let's hold on to that for a moment and let's look at the third, uh, the third, um, uh, way that the ancients tried to solve this problem was personal sin. And you don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to read one verse uh, from Jeremiah 31. Again, you don't need to turn there. But uh, just listen as I read this verse. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And I think we understand this, that uh, personal sin can cause suffering. Personal sin can be can cause suffering. Uh, obviously, if I go and rob a, a gas station and I get caught and I end up doing 10 years in jail, well, the suffering I'm doing 10 years in jail is suffering I brought on myself, right? I robbed the gas station. I went to jail. Does that mean that any suffering that I do in this life is always going to be connected to something I did? The answer is no. And with that, let's go back. 
Let's go back to John chapter 9. And here we see is this insistence. The disciples, they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's an insistence. Okay, here's this man. He's blind. He was born this way. God is good, loving, holy, and sovereign. The only way that this could happen is if either the parents did something wrong or if he did something wrong. We might ask, how could the disciples blame this guy if he was born that way? Because some of the ancients held that children could sin in the womb. They said, well, sin in the womb, where did they get that from? Yeah, I see some of your facial expressions like, what? Well, they would argue from texts like uh, uh, Genesis, uh, I think, 22, or Genesis 25, 22, uh, don't hold me to that, where uh, Esau and Jacob are wrestling in the womb of their mom. And what are they doing wrestling in the womb of their mom? They're, they're fighting. Uh, so they're committing evil in the womb of the mom. It'd be, it'd be from texts like that. Or uh, it could happen this way, where a woman who is carrying child goes into a pagan temple and offers sacrifices to a pagan deity. Now, some in the ancient world, no, I don't want you to think, I'm arguing for this stuff. I'm explaining what they believed. Some would believe, okay, the child was present, and as the mom worshipped the pagan deity and committed idolatry, so did the child. The child committed. So you see, in their minds, uh, it is possible for this man to have committed a sin uh, while he was still in the womb. And their question uh, before Jesus is, uh, which one was it? There's an insistence that it has to be one or the other. And again, this is the problem that we encounter in Job, isn't it? You know, in the book of Job, if you've never read the book of Job this afternoon, at least read like the first four chapters or so, five chapters. You'll get the gist of what's going on, where his friends come alongside Job and his calamity, and they insist over and over again that Job's in this mess because he must have done something to deserve this mess. They, they insist over and over and over again. Again, it's this idea. Now, with this in mind, let's make a couple of observations before we look at Jesus' answer. If you look at verse 2 there, chapter 9, verse 2, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, as I think about this question, I am really struggling to see how the answer of this question, assuming that it was true, let's may I hypothetically say that it had to have been either the parents or the a man himself. I am struggling to see how this question could be going in a good direction. Now, someone will say, what do you mean by that? I'm struggling to see how this couldn't end up just in gossip. I mean, if we try to get into the question as best we can, how do you suppose it was asked? Here they are. Perhaps they're leaving the temple, and they come across this man, and what do you suppose it was? Probably something like this. Rabbi. Hey, Rabbi. Oh, see that guy? Who did it? Was it him? Was his parents? Now, suppose it was the parents. Suppose, hypothetically speaking, Jesus said, well, it was the parents. 
What's going to be the next question? What'd they do? Now, while one disciple is asking what they did, the rest of them are on their phone scouring Facebook to try to get the dirty on it, right? I don't see how this is headed in any other direction than that. And the point that I want to make, the observation I want to make, is that our fallen hearts are often more eager to gossip than they are to help. Right? I mean, I don't want anyone to think, hey, Rick's standing up here, you know, um, he don't have that problem, uh, and he's speaking to a bunch of people who have that problem. Listen, Rick has the problem too. I want to be clear on that as we go into this. I had, there was a remnant of sin dwelling in my heart as well. Um, so I want to be clear on that. So I don't see how any good could have come out of this question had it been true. If it was some sin the man or his parents had committed, the conversation was going to degrade into gossip. And, you know, gossip, well, I would just let me spend a moment or two on that and we'll move on. But gossip is like gluttony. It's those, you know, in our culture, we have, we have these sins that um, Jeremy Bridges, he wrote a book years ago called Respectable Sins where he covered these, he covered these sins. You know, there's these sins where, you know, drug addiction bad, you know, drug addiction bad. Uh, covered dish dinner, gorging yourself at a covered dish dinner, good, you know. Um, actually, no. Um, it's really the same same. Because you can be addicted to sugar, you can be addicted to food. You ever hear this phrase that's used in the world all the time called comfort food? What is comfort food? It's idolatry is what it is. That's a real nice term for idolatry, comfort food. What do you need comfort from food for when we have a Savior? And it's one of these sins where we're like, we don't even think about it. We, we, don't even, we don't even think about that, do we? Again, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm over here saying, I don't have this problem. Sometimes when you feel, if you're on a diet and you're starting to feel really low, it's really hard to keep your diet, isn't it? Why? Because of the attraction and the grip that food has on us. That's why. And that attraction and that grip is the same, same. So my fix might not be heroin. It might be chocolate. We just need to be mindful of this about ourselves. And it will really help us understand some of the struggles that other people are dealing with. Um, so back to John. Uh, Jesus, how does he answer this question? You know, we, we haven't made it past verse 2 here. Let's go to verse 3. Jesus answers the question, and his answer is startling. In fact, the modern mindset can't deal with this. The modern mindset is not equipped to deal with the answer that Jesus gives here. Jesus says it was not this man or his parents. It was not this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Say what? Uh, what's Jesus saying? Here's this man who was born blind, and he's, he's a man. He's lived for many years, having never seen red. 
having never seen a sunset, having never been able to look at the compassionate eyes of his mom, or seen the, uh, grati- the to be gratified by seeing a, 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 a countenance of approval from his father. He's never seen any of these things. And Jesus is here saying that all of this has come about according to the will of God. Calvin, in his famous institutes, begins this way. He says, if I might paraphrase him a little bit loosely, he says, to know God, we have to know ourselves. And conversely, to know ourselves, we have to know God. That's how he begins. The right knowledge of God begins with the right knowledge of self, and the right knowledge of self begins with the right knowledge of God. Now, what Calvin is up to is this. We don't come to see ourselves until we come to see at least a little bit of the holiness of God. Once we see a little bit of the holiness of God, what happens? We suddenly discover what we are. We are unholy. We are unclean. Uh, we, we're a mess. Without that glimpse of God, we, we might not ever come to that conclusion about ourselves unless, uh, unless we end up being a real, real bad guy. But our tendency is not to think of ourselves as real, real bad guys. Our tendency is to think of ourselves as real, real good guys. You know, in our culture today, if you bump into someone that says, I'm a good Christian person, I'm a good Christian person. Listen, in all likelihood, that person does not know Jesus who says that. How can I say such a thing? Why would I say such a thing? Because as you come to know Jesus, you become to know yourself. If we're so good, what did he do? What's he doing on the cross? If we're so good, why does he come and die on the cross if we're so? What well, I'm a good Christian man. What are they saying? They're saying they don't know anything about the gospel. Well, Jesus dies on the cross for what? Our good Christian behavior? He dies on the cross for our sins. And people who, are, people who have walked with the Lord for any length of time, what do they say? They say with amazing grace, he died to save a wretch like me. Right? So you see, knowledge of God actually informs us about ourselves. And as we're informed about ourselves, God is so merciful to us that he just doesn't leave us in the dirt. He then begins to show us his heart as he reaches into the dirt and into the filth of sin, and he picks us up and he pulls us to himself. Well, now all of a sudden we're starting to get to know God. What is he like? He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's loving. He is powerful. Now, our, our modern man today has forgotten this. He has forgotten this. Years ago, the depravity of man was still alive and well in secular parlance. In other words, The depravity of mankind was still alive and well within your secular secular media, within your secular uh, talk, within your secular secular, uh, vocabulary. But for so many years, preachers and Bible teachers have ignored the depravity of man to the point that it's now no longer part of secular parlance. 
So how in the world do we deal with suffering? We lose our ability to deal with suffering because along the way, the advertisement campaigns have come in and have continually told us 24-7 that we deserve to live like kings and queens. How many times in a day do you suppose we hear, we deserve this, we deserve that, we deserve this, we deserve that? And it's, it's, it's impossible to hear that all the time and not be carried by the wave of that to where we start to buy into it. Wait a second. I deserve it. I deserve I deserve the house on the hill with the white picket fence and the three-stall garage with his car, my car, and the play toy. I deserve all this stuff. And when I don't get this stuff, what's wrong? Or when something is taken away from me, what is going to be one of the most common attitudes that I'm going to have. It's going to be anger towards God because he didn't give me what I feel I deserved. See, um, Jesus' words are easier to embrace when we believe we don't deserve wealth, health, and happiness. The gospel, knowing ourselves, I mean, it puts ama- I mean, knowing ourselves puts amazing back into amazing grace. Amazing has fallen out of grace. Knowing ourselves, you know, knowing, you don't need to turn there, but knowing chapters like Romans 3, which have fallen on hard times. I don't know how many sermons you'd hear on Romans 3. Uh, today, um, as I read it, you'll understand why. Um, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of me, peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow, who could Paul be talking to? Who could he be talking about with such a description as this? Listen, friends, he's talking about me. He's talking about me. And he's talking about you. And he's talking about all of us. And as we begin to understand this, we begin to understand that what R.C. Sproul used to call cosmic rebels, as cosmic rebels against God, we don't deserve anything but his wrath. So when we receive good from him, what does that inform us about him? It informs us that he is very, very good. Whereas today, when we believe the opposite, that this would only describe the very worst of us, but for the rest of us, we really deserve a great hand. We deserve a straight flush from the Lord. Um, There's going to be no appreciation for God whatsoever. And that's where we are, isn't it? It's exactly where we are. But as we come to know ourselves, then we become to be equipped. The disciples asked Jesus this question. It was not that this man sinned or his parents that he was born blind. 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, this is why this isn't happening willy-nilly. This man was born in a certain way to serve God in this certain way so that Jesus would come across his path at a certain time and that Jesus would actually bring healing to his life in order to demonstrate an important principle. Notice back to John chapter 9. Jesus says in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, it's not our purpose this morning to begin to tease out what all of this is about. But let me just whet our appetites for next week and the following week is that what is God up to? From our perspective, only being able to see this much, all we can hang on is the fact that this man has suffered for all these years not being able to see. But what has God been up to? And what is 30 years or 40 years or 50 years to God anyways? And what is it to us? We're eternal creatures. We are going to live forever. So what is it to us? This man is is born blind, and this is what we see. What we cannot see is the bigger picture, where God is going to perform something. Jesus is going to perform something. Jesus is giving this man sight, not simply just so he can see and go actually see what his mom looks like, but so that a gospel principle can be put before people like us 2,000 years later to look at this. Many people, many people, many people, have come to Christ through this story and have passed away and stepped into an eternity, an eternal bliss with this man. You see the blessings? The problem is we often only see like this. The title of this morning's message is The Will and Design of the Father. Why was this man born blind? The answer is, it's the will and design of the Father. We, we, he, he doesn't need us to defend him. He doesn't need us to come to his side and say, oh, no, 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 the Father would never do such a thing like this. Actually, the clear teaching of the Word is the Father has. Instead of running to his defense and trying to take away from the Word of God, let's run to the Lord and on our knees, prayer, and through prayer, ask to be informed by the Word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a difficult subject we come to this morning. And the difficulty is, Father, as we think about tragedy, as we think about some of the tragedies and the many sufferings that we cannot make sense of, Father, sometimes we can trace a line directly to the actions of a parent or the actions of an individual or the actions of someone else. And we can say, yes, this is, this is why that happened. But Father, in back of that, we, we scratch our heads and we wonder, Lord, how is it that this was allowed to happen? How is this that it was enabled to happen? Why couldn't it be stopped? 
And Father, we must stop there, for the secret things belong to you. The revealed things belong to us. And Father, as we continue to study this passage, and our study is incomplete this morning, but as we continue to study this passage, Father, I pray that you'll continue to shine light upon this great doctrine, Father. Help us, O Father, to see that your ways are not like our ways. Help us to see, O Father, that for the believer, all suffering is temporary. Help us to see, O Father, that our lives are short. Help us to see, O Father, that even though we cannot understand, even though that we cannot understand, we know that all your works are good. And help us, O Father, to understand, especially in our day, that, Father, anything that's good in our life that comes our way is a great blessing from your hand. We do not deserve nice things from you. But the fact that you shower upon them, you shower them upon us, displays your amazing grace. Put amazing grace into our hearts, O oh Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.